Well, this last Wednesday, we moved into a short season in the church here we call Lent. And uh, while it's short, it's, it's important. I'll be the first to admit that it's my favorite season of the church year. I have always loved the season of Lent, a penitential season, a season in which we are reminded in a special way of the doing and dying of Jesus on our part. The text on which I base my message to you this morning is the assigned Old Testament lesson for this first Sunday in Lent. And it is a story, well, it's history, not story. It, it is the history of mankind's fall into sin. In, in other words, it marks where the beginning of our problems really started. You notice I've entitled the message, The Fall and Rise of the Human Race. I'll be the first to admit that I have a hard time coming up with titles for messages. Whoever wrote The Rise and Fall of the German, or of the Third Reich, I, I owe them. So I'm, I'm recognizing it publicly. That way none of you can sue me. I just twisted it around a little bit because... In spiritual order, we speak of the fall and then the rise of the human race. And we can see both of that, uh, or both of those uh, evidenced here in, in this chapter. I'll read then Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not Eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, You must not eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden. You must not even touch it, for if you do, you'll die. You will surely not die, the serpent said to the woman. You see, God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God. You'll know good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And he called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from it. Uh, and I ate it. Well, then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you've done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you've done this, curse are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly, and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will... Crush your head and you will strike his heel. The woman, or to the woman, he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain, 
and you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. And the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he'd been taken. And after he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. The young boy was sitting at his desk in his room preparing to compose a report for his class. And he was really at a loss for an appropriate introduction. So he laid down his pen on the paper and he went out and sought his mother who was in the kitchen preparing supper. And without any warning, he asked, Mother, how was I born? Mother, of course, was aware that this question about human reproduction was inevitable, but She wasn't going to deal with it while she was cooking dinner, so she put him off with the old answer, well, the the stork brought you, dear. The boy nodded and moved to the living room where his grandmother was knitting. Without warning, he asked her, Grandma, how was my mom born? Well, Grandma wasn't going to touch this with a 10-foot pole, so she said, well, dear, the stork brought your mother. Grandma, how were you born? Well, the stork brought me too, she responded responded. He thanked her and he returned to his desk. Picking up his pen, he began his report with these words. There hasn't been a normal birth in our family for three generations. (laughs) Something was wrong, right? Well, there hasn't been a normal birth in the world for way more than several generations. Things went wrong in the very first generation, our first parents. Man has not been how God created him since our first parents. As they experienced and because of and through them we experience the fall into sin. You know sin is a deceptive thing. The deceptiveness of sin is is partly because Satan is crafty. It says in verse 1 that the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. But you know, in most cases, and I mean there's times when we're overtaken, we're we're caught off guard and we'll commit a sin even before we think about it. But most often, in, in the normal course of things, there really is a process towards sin. And I believe that that that's what we're seeing when we look at James chapter 1, Verses 13 through 16, when tempted, 
No one should say God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he's dragged away and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers. The first step towards sin is when the thought of evil comes to us. And we can't necessarily help that. If I tell you right now, don't think of a hot fudge Sunday, what did you all think about? You're going home after lunch, right, and going to make one? You, you can't help it. Don't think of a, of a purple horse. We could use all of our willpower and we still can't stop the thought of evil or the thought coming to us. That can't be helped. But what can be helped is what we do with it when it first comes our way. If we deal with it right then and there, dismiss it, give it to the Lord, ask him to give us strength to make us aware of of the situation, he'll help us. But it's so easy to get carried away as James talks about it. Now when we get carried away, there is deception coming in. When we begin to think that something bad is really something good. And we're enticed by it. We're drawn to it. Just like a fish can be drawn to a lure. Now I understand when a fish is drawn to a lure that looks like a minnow. But have any of you ever seen a spinnerbait? I should have brought one today. A spinnerbait doesn't look like any creature ever created by man. But if I'm going to go bass fishing, it'll be one of the first lures I tie on. And it is effective. They watch that thing going through the water, and they just have to have it. They're enticed. They're deceived in their thinking, however much a bass can think. And we get deceived too and enticed away, and we begin to lust for it. And when we're to that point, it's just one small step down to simply commit the sin. It's interesting. The first step has to do with deception. Look at what James says. He talks about this process, and then he says, don't be deceived. Barney Fife would say, nip it, nip it in the bud. We need to deal with it right away. Before we begin to look at it, before we begin to see things that aren't really there or to see it in a way that we shouldn't see it, when we start making something good out of something that we know is evil, don't be deceived. Don't even start down that road. Eve is certainly an example of that failure. Satan comes to her and and he attacks her, but his attacks are very subtle. He didn't out and out accuse God of anything initially, at least. He just planted a seed in Eve's consciousness that perhaps God wasn't as good as they had previously thought. Did God say? And he caught her off guard. And note how her answer misrepresents God. She said, oh no, we can eat from the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God did say, you must not eat from the fruit of the tree that's in the middle of the garden. And then she says, you must not touch it or you will die. 
If you go back to Genesis 2, 16 and 17, God never said, don't touch it. She's embellishing it. And even though she didn't yet know good from evil, I'll tell you this, she knew right from wrong. She knew that to even touch it could lead to that whole process of her giving in. And so she knew in her heart that she needed to stay away from that. And so she misrepresents it. But he, he, doesn't, he doesn't stop there. Now he begins to oppose God, and yet he's kind of righteous as he does so. Oh, you'll not die. Surely you'll not die, the serpent said to the woman. You see, God knows when you eat of it, your eyes are going to be opened and you'll be like God. You'll know good from evil. And he successfully got her to redirect her focus. Now, instead of rejoicing in God's abundant provision and giving thanks for all that he does provide, she begins to focus on God's single prohibition and she begins to doubt his love and his goodness. Perhaps, perhaps he is holding out on us. Perhaps he doesn't want us to touch it or eat it because he knows what will happen. The woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also, look at this, and also desirable for gaining wisdom. You see how it's happened here? She's deceived. She's being carried away. She's enticed by it all. And now she's looking at sin as though it's something good. And she's looking on it like it's God's fault, not mine. And he's not being fair. So she took some. She ate it. And then she also gave some to her husband who was there with her and he ate it. But note, note the consequences of sin. Note what occurred to and in Adam and Eve. Spiritually, they died the very instant they sinned. They began to experience guilt and shame. We read in verses 7 and 8 that their eyes were opened and, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Now their physical nakedness was not so much the promise or the problem as what their spiritual failure had been and what it was costing them. And they wanted to to hide from God because now instead of loving him, they feared him. So they sewed these leaves together and we talked about this a little bit this morning in confirmation. What they did is they created the first real tree camel. Because they're using it to hide from God. But it didn't work. The man and the wife, while they're hiding, heard the sound. They hid from the Lord among the trees of the garden. And then when he does confront them, they both refuse to take responsibility for their rebellion. In fact, the man is willing to throw the woman under the bus, if you will. That woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. And then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you've, that, that you've done? 
And the woman said, well, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Now, it is true, she was deceived. Paul says that in, in, in the New Testament. She was deceived because she took the lure, if you will. She began to look on it in the wrong way. And before long, what she saw was this fruit was not only a good-looking fruit, but it was desirable for wisdom. She wanted to be like God. And she was deceived in thinking that eating a bite of this fruit would give her that kind of wisdom. The Bible also says that Adam was not deceived. Does that make him better than the woman? Not on your life. Notice here, he's standing right by her. He's standing right by her. What does he do to protect her? What does he do to help her? What does he do to help deal with this temptation? He does nothing. Absolutely nothing. He lets her take the fruit. He lets her eat of it. And when she hands it to him, he's thinking the same thing she was. I guess I'll give it a try. And then when God came, rather than owning up to it, he blamed his failure on the wife. They began right there to experience the consequences of sin. Spiritually, they knew they were naked. They knew they couldn't hide from God. They feared him and wanted to, but they couldn't do it. They couldn't do it. And yet, they were also, because of the fall, unable to to confess their sin and to own up to it. God has to bring us to that state of repentance And then there are these other consequences that they begin to experience. The woman, he says to the woman, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. And he didn't do a very good job there in the garden. For the most part, he hasn't done a very good job since. We're messed up. The fall into sin has affected man and woman alike. It doesn't matter. We're all guilty. We've all experienced that fall. To the woman, there will be pain in childbearing. To the man, he says, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, You will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground since from it you were taken. For dust you are and to dust you will return. Work became a four-letter word. Now it's toilsome. Now it's hard. It used to bring joy. Now we can get so confused that we would choose work over God. It doesn't make sense, but it happens. And all of creation continues to suffer because of Adam and Eve's fall into sin. And we also suffer Adam's sin 
In Romans 5.12, the apostle writes, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way death came to all men because all sinned. We inherited a sinful nature. And that's all we can get from our parents. It's a sinful nature. Do you remember the old Toro commercials? Probably from, I don't know, back in the 80s. Father, wife, and a son are going to have a family portrait taken. And, And the father has his brand new Toro lawnmower. And he's so taken with it that he insisted. It has to be a part of the family portrait. And they're standing there then, mom and dad and the son and the Toro and the the father who doesn't want to ruin the the picture speaks through his teeth. Someday, son, this will all be yours. Well, he had it so he could pass it on. I can't give my kids a Rolls Royce. I can give them a 2017 Dodge Ram. I guess now they're just Rams, excuse me. Nice pickup, but it'll go the way of the world just like every other vehicle I've ever owned. Hmm. Question 143 in the Catechism asks, how has sin injured the human soul? And the answer is a threefold answer. First of all, it has darkened the understanding. And you can see that immediately in the darkened understanding of Adam and Eve. Secondly, it has made the will incapable of what is good and desirous of all that is evil. We see that in the fall. I read uh, from W.L. Barnes a, a little article called Free as a Bird. And he says, recently we put up a hummingbird feeder with four feeding stations. Almost immediately became popular with the hummingbirds that live in our area. Two, three, or even four birds would feed at one time. We refilled the feeder at least once a day. Suddenly, the usage decreased to almost nothing. The feeder now needed filling only about once a week, and the reason for the decreased usage soon became apparent. A male hummingbird had taken over the feeder as his property. He's now the only hummingbird he uses the feeder. He feeds and then he sits in a nearby tree, rising to attack any bird that approaches his feeder. Guard duty occupies his every waking hour. He's an effective guard. The only time another bird gets to use the feeder is when the self-appointed owner is momentarily gone to chase away another intruder. We soon realized that the hummingbird was teaching us a valuable lesson. By choosing to assume ownership of the feeder, he is forfeiting his freedom. He's no longer free to come and go as he wished. He's tied to the work of guarding his feeder. He is possessed by his possession. I like that. He is possessed by his possession. The freedom of action, his freedom of action is circumscribed or as circumscribed as if he were in a cage. He is caged by a situation he has created. If you've ever put up a hummingbird feeder, you know what I'm talking about. That happened with us. We ended up having to put up several. When there's that many, they get confused. They're not sure which one to claim. They can all jump in and 
suck down that juice. (laughs) But if there's only one, there'll be war. Thirdly, it has disturbed the peace and joy of conscience. And think of that as we look back on, on the experience and the reaction of Adam and Eve. And it, it is it is destructive to us too, destroying our peace and our joy of conscience. Question 144 in the Catechism asks, How has sin injured the human body? And the answer is, Sin has made the body a tool of every passion or every evil passion and has brought upon it disease, distress, countless pains, and finally death. A man had a friend who moved his business. His sales had increased to the point where he needed a larger warehouse and sales office. And even though the move was rather complicated and a burdensome process, it really was the thing to do and it was to be celebrated. For this reason, the man sent his friends some flowers on the day of his grand opening. The order for the flowers, however, was mishandled by the florist, and the businessman received a bouquet that was intended for a funeral. It was accompanied by a card which said, My deepest sympathy during this time of sorrow. When the man called his friend on the phone to wish him well, he was confronted with the error. Why in the world, the businessman asked, did you send me these sympathy flowers? Well, the man immediately went to the florist, met him outside the shop, and he was obviously upset. And the man says, I'm terribly sorry about the mix-up with your flowers, but I hope you'll be understanding. You see, your situation isn't half as bad as the one down at the funeral home because the folks there received your flowers, your flowers accompanied by the card which said best wishes in your new location. But what or which location? Which location? For us when we die, which location? Having sinned and fallen short of God's standards, how can we face our death with any confidence, how can our sin debt be removed from us? And how can we know that we'll go to heaven when we die? Well, we've covered the fall. But there is also a promise, a bright promise, a promise for eternal blessing that's given in this passage. Now notice that Satan was cursed. The creation was cursed. But mankind was not cursed. Instead, God promised a Savior for mankind. In Genesis 3.15 we read, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Think of that. A head wound versus a heel wound. You'll survive the heel wound, right? It'll be nagging, bothersome. But a head wound, that'll be fatal. He will strike you in the head. You will only strike him on his heel. That was what God said to the evil one. And then in that promise, he also, or in that statement, he also promised a savior for mankind. And Paul speaks of this seed. 
when he writes in Galatians 4, 4 and 5, but when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive the full rights of sons. During this Lenten season, we will recall his suffering and death, that which earned our forgiveness. God provided for Adam and Eve in the meantime. He made garments of skin for them and clothed them with it. Scholars are divided as to whether or not God instituted animal sacrifice at this time. But regardless, they were taught this, weren't they? That there is a high price to sin. An innocent animal was sacrificed in order to cover them. And then Adam and Eve were banished from the garden for their own good. Because if they had gone in or stayed there and eaten from the tree of life, they would have lived forever but out of fellowship with God and under the curse of God forever. God knew what was best, and he provided exactly what was needed for our salvation from sin, from death, and from the devil. The promise was that he would send Jesus, his only son, and that Jesus, who knew no sin, would become sin for us and offer himself, as the writer of Hebrews talks about it. But his offering of self would be a once-for-all sacrifice. It doesn't have to be provided or redone year in and year out. God knew what was best. He provided exactly what was needed for our salvation from sin, death, and Satan. And as I talked on, on Wednesday evening, He lavished that redemption on us. He lavished it on us. As I I said on Wednesday night, when I think of something lavish, I think of something that's extravagant to the point of wastefulness. Yet he lavished redemption on us, and it says he did it in all wisdom. Why? Because he knew what it would take to earn your forgiveness and mine. And he was willing to pay. He was willing to give his son for you. He was willing to give his son for me. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And in 1 Peter 2.24, we read this good news, that he himself, Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. And in 1 Corinthians 5, verses 14 and 15, we read, For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. And in 1 Peter 4, verses 1 through 6, I'll close this message with these words. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. As a result, he does not live the rest of his earthly life for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. May that be true for me and for each of us. You've spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, 
carousing and detestable idolatry. They think it strange that you do not plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation and they heap abuse on you. (coughs) But they will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason, the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead so that they might be judged according to men in regard to the body, but live according to God in the spirit. The fall, yeah, it's recorded. It's a terrible fall. (coughs) But there is a rise. There is good news for us. (coughs) Jesus came into this world to provide our forgiveness and new life in him. And as we go through this Lenten season, may we grow more deeply appreciative of what he has provided for us through the finished work of Jesus. Amen.